Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. East Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys and girls. Hunter Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Bucks spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Say hello to my new friend. What's your name, man? I told you. It doesn't matter what your name is. You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Saturday continued to Monday. We're still doing the longest broadcast known to mankind. <laughs> Mike Gallagher looks like he still has not left the studio from Saturday slash Sunday. The um, eight-hour broadcast. I don't know what was the official time. We'll go to that later. But what was the official time? Seven hours, 56 minutes, and 30 seconds. I, I'm usually tired after a broadcast just, just in general, but that was the next level tired. I mean, we that was a – you know, we didn't have an option really to go back to uh, what what some you know. If we just did a station, weren't on a network, we would be able to uh, you know go back to regular scheduled program, check back in. Get to the end of the nope, got to keep going. We kept going, talked the whole time. Some good conversation. There were some. Some we just got silly at some point. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk all about that in uh, segment three today <sighs> in Pros vs. Jays. I got out of here at about five forty-five in the morning on Saturday slash Sunday and decided. Well, I go to sleep at that point, so I stayed up all through the night, went about 40 hours without sleep, and needless to say, when you do that, you're, you think that you're going to sleep a lot better the night after, but it never ends up really being the case, and you always just end up feeling worse because your sleep schedule's all thrown off, and your body just can't catch up. It, it doesn't happen that way. It's not like just rolling over, oh, you're going to sleep that much better the next night, so it, I thought it may be the case. Uh, naturally, as is usually the case, I was wrong. Well, and the good news is, is uh, once you crash out today, somewhere around lunchtime or something, maybe <laughs> well, during the press conference, you, fair, may, you, you may pass you out. You said that about, I texted you and said, yeah, I haven't slept, whatever. I'm going to go watch some football. You're like, oh, you'll be out by 5 or 6 o'clock. I made it all the way through th- Sunday night football last night. No, I'm impressive. glad I did because that's it was impressive. a great game. It was game, a good game. Uh, and it had some very large fantasy implications on the line as well. Um, and I, I just enjoy watching the Eagles and Falcons play football. I don't know what it is. I think I like Zach Ertz. I think I like Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley. I think I like the throw, throw, throw that mm-hmm. they tend to do. So that was a fun game. Anyway, that's what you talk about the game. Not that I really want to talk about the game itself. Yeah, and there's a lot to... A lot to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot. All right. Uh, ETSU obviously falling in overtime, 31-24. I think a couple of stats. I think I'll go here first and maybe talk about more uh, breakdown plays and other stuff. But the, the stat that really threw me off when I got back to really kind of look at it... Uh, um, post game and really when we went off air, the total number of plays that VMI had yeah. compared to ETSU w- was gaudy. Almost thirty more plays. Um, VMI running over uh, ninety plays. I think ninety was that ninety four plays. Yeah, yeah ninety four plays. Sixty eight for ETSU. Yeah, I mean you're looking at about thirty plays, and then ETSU one for twelve. And I knew they had struggled. They had the one third and short they ran for. There was a little bit of mix. There were a couple of throws that could have been better on third down, and there were some drops, key drops on third down. And if you don't want the other team to run 30 more plays, if a couple of those third downs are converted, right, that's at least going to continue a drive, maybe continue some momentum. If nothing else, it gives you three or four plays, time running before you have to kick and give them the ball back. So even if you had three or four first downs, that maybe gives VMI 15 to, to – you know, 12 to 15 plays less. ETSU 12 to 15 more, and obviously you're getting back in there. But I think that that was the uh, the first one. And then I know they, they talked about penalties. That was a big one they were going to try to stay away from. Nine penalties, 105 yards, a couple of, of costly uh, having to kick off from the 20. How many penalties for the ball kicked out of bounds? Three, I'll answer that for you. That that was uh, something you just don't see a lot of, even change kickers. From and two it still different kickers, matter. That's right. right. Uh, and then, you know, Garrett – Garrett Taylor, the freshman, uh, traditional punting style was great. They decided, almost got blocked one time, so they went to the rugby. He clearly let it be known, whether he said it verbally or not. 
not comfortable doing the rugby putting. Eight yards on one of them. Yeah, two two of his worst punts. And then he went back to traditionals and was, you know, really doing a good job there. And and honestly, I thought special teams was going to go the other way. And now, granted, there were some uh, each kicker at least missed one field goal, but VMI's punting was way better. Uh, and the best punting they have had all season. And that helped kind of flip the field a couple of times. But field position, third downs, penalties, all that, again, a recipe plus turnovers, right? Uh, VMI has been very good about not turning the ball over, didn't turn it over in that game. ETSU won interception early, one fumble, uh, what was that, I guess, uh, late third quarter on a drive. And so two turnovers uh, in VMI territory both times certainly stalled some drives. Very clean game from VMI. And to go back to your first point, VMI had six drives of eight plays or more. ETSU had two of eight plays or more. And one of those was in overtime where the Bucks had eight plays, 19 yards. And then ultimately, as they picked up the first fourth down, could not pick up the second fourth down starting from the 25 in that overtime as they needed a touchdown. One of those drops you talked about, and Anthony Spagnoletti was in the end zone, would have been the game-tying score pending the extra point, And he wasn't able to haul that in. There's just so much here. I think that the main thing that VMI did so well, you look throughout the game, and that short passing game was just so impressive, and it kind of, I think, is a beacon of why they have had success in not turning the ball over. They're averaging this year 5.75 yards per attempt in the air. That is minuscule. And it was even less for Reese Udinsky on Saturday, you look at it, and I believe it was, I had it written down, jotted down somewhere, but it was like 4.5 yards per attempt for the team. I think that's on the box score as well as I can go find it. But what really skewed that upward was, I think it was Leroy Thomas, or was it Rohan Martin, who threw Therese Udinsky for 30 yards. So that's even skewed upwards <laughs> for the usual quarterback with Udinsky with those 64 attempts that he had. It would be even lower than that. Uh, and yeah, 4.7 yards per attempt, 8 yards per completion. They're averaging 9.8 yards per completion this year. So they even packed it in in terms of underneath throws a little bit more than they usually have this year. But when you make throws like that and you're living in that underneath game and yeah, you're doing some creative things and such, but you're not forcing the ball downfield, not putting the ball in dangerous positions, you're not going to turn the ball over. So it's now seven touchdowns to no interceptions this year for Reese Udinsky through the air. ETSU last year had five interceptions against him. They also sacked him eight times, no interceptions. And yes, three sacks, which is still good for ETSU's defense, but it's certainly not the eight that they had last year. So certainly a ton of different things that affected the game. It was another, for me, weird and wild and crazy contest between these two teams. Uh, I don't know what you think is more outrageous, the game last year or the game this year. Both very similar, I think, in terms of um, the maybe unconventional nature of them. Maybe this year it was just because of the two lightning delays that I feel that way. Last year it was definitely more because of the, uh, firstly, punt return for ETSU, first one since 1997, four touchdown from Quan Harrison. It was all the interceptions, all the sacks, 13 penalties. Of course, ETSU, like you said, didn't really clean that up. And we'll talk more about that in bold predictions, unfortunately for me. Nine penalties, 105 yards after 13 for 142 last year. But the game swings the opposite way. And we knew this was coming, Jay. We couldn't win games by three points or less forever, right? It was six games last year by 16 points combined. And you knew at some point you were going to lose a tight game. This happened to be it. Yeah, that's the the unfortunate thing. And it, it was it. And, and that's, um, that's the difference in, in some years. Now, the question is how, how you know how do they respond to this and we'll talk about this during the week because they're going to get austin Peay's coming off a great start to the season for them but how how is the team because last year you know they they were able to squeak out literally every single uh win like that and i think the only one it was a, a single loss i think might have been wofford i think etish maybe got one late wofford came up but but in uh <clears throat> or Wofford got a touchdown late, maybe make it 14. 30-17, yeah. Yeah, so they got a touchdown late 38-27 with Samford. Yeah, so that was Two a, score games. All the, all the games, you know, went absolutely ETSU's way. And you could easily look at those and go, okay, well, if you lost one or two of those, you lost three of those, you're 500, it changes the dynamic of the season. And VMI last year, very documented, lost five games within that. So it, it's kind of flipped, you know. Some teams hungry there, I certainly think. Blood in the water, VMI uh, started to sniffing out. Their last uh, conference 
road win was 2015 versus Mercer, 28-21. to 21. Last road win overall, 2016, against Bucknell. Yeah, so it's, it's been still a been a while for those guys to have victory. They celebrated well-earned, and they, you know, because they are not turning the ball over – and Udinsky is, is taking care of it. The the defense has been opportunistic. They're now uh, plus seven on the season. Think about that through Top three games. Top ten mark in the nation. So that's certainly a, a good recipe. And I think they'll give some teams fits, you know, but that's, that's sort of the game VMI is going to have to do. Sort of like last year, ETSU and league play really wasn't going to hammer a lot of people and win. That's just not really – they're not built that way. They're not there yet to to do that. And I'll, uh, you know, I guess take the Gardner Webb game out. But that wasn't a league game, right? So I think it's going to be interesting to see how the Bucks bounce back. It'll be interesting to see how VMI goes. The one thing I would say is, again, it was sort of feast or famine offensively. Uh, ETSU had 460 yards of total offense, but 12 plays equal 337 of that. Mm. Headlined by that Keith Coffey 57-yarder and the Jacob Saylor 61-yarder. So, you know, so that means 56 plays only netted 123. So you're talking 2.1 two, 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 yeah. or whatever, yeah. But, so quick math there. And and that's that's certainly – they've shown the big, pay, big play capability. I think they had six in the pass game, six in the run game. Uh, two touchdowns off that, a 57-yarder, a 61-yarder. But ETSU can't go in those lulls, and they got to be able to, to – third downs and it's always been a problem since program they've got to be able to convert third one downs. for 12 is not good i'm curious if you think within that big play discussion that vmi kind of controlled the game uh, i'm not sure that i got that sense completely while the game was happening but it always felt like etsu was maybe a bit behind the eight ball and we can talk about lightning delays until we're blue in the face and how those don't seem to affect the bucks well of course tennessee and then uh, I can't remember if the lightning delay was before or after the Reese Udinsky run for the first down, that 16-yard run. Maybe you remember better than myself. But ETSU's defense was very upset, the fact that the lightning delay was happening. The Bucks were just getting some momentum, right? They had that 57-yard touchdown. The defense was on the field, and things started to seemingly be turning in the Bucks' favor after a really quiet start. Lightning delay comes, and then VMI out of the locker room gets the touchdown from Alex Ramsey down the three-yard, or pardon me, from Rohan Martin on the 13-yard pass, and then they have a field goal to try and take the lead before the half that ends up short, but two scoring opportunities and certainly all the momentum going to the locker room. So I don't know if you necessarily felt, and I don't know if I did too 100%, but it seemed like the game was more controlled certainly than last year by VMI, uh, and maybe that's because they just did have the consistent short passing game and ETSU, I think, had more of a chance to control the game by running the ball more. They actually ended up passing it 39 times to running it 29 times, certainly going in. I thought they would have those numbers flipped where they'd run the ball more than they'd pass. Yeah, it, it, the game really went back and forth on sort of control because it seemed like in the first quarter it was like um, maybe the beginning of a heavyweight fight where guys really yeah, that first process. round just filling out. You know, running a couple different sets here and there. How are you going to react? How are you going to do whatever? And then second quarter, you know, it started to pick up. You get the big touchdown pass. Uh, the defense comes out, and they, they get a stop on first down. It's going to be second and long, and all of a sudden the lightning delay. Then you come out, and I think from there, VMI, and I'd, I'd have to go back, and I'm going to watch it today. Um but I think VMI went to more of a up-tempo style at that point. Um, everything they had done, sort of taking their time, getting there. And, and now they don't, they're not one of those that's going to let the uh, play clock wind down to five seconds and snap it. But, I mean, they weren't snapping it at, with 25 left on the play clock. It was more about 15, 10, something like that. Then all of a sudden they started snapping it about every 20 seconds. Um, and, you know, limits the, the amount of time guys can play. I think it hurt – Clearly still thin at linebacker, right, in the middle part. There was still no uh, Jared Folks. Uh, and then losing uh, Jason Madua-Fakwa there um, early second half. So that's, right. a two, that's two of your guys that were key members that helped beat VMI last year, not on the field. You know, Nasir Player battling through a, an arm injury. They cast it, cast it up his hand, hand yeah. and, you know, he went at it. So certainly a lot uh, – uh, it was good to see those guys battling, but I think VMI took over. But but even when it looked like VMI maybe was taking control of the game, ETSU go 90 yards right down the field and score. Then all of a sudden, VMI would come right back, you know, and then the Bucks needed one more score to go. Then then they go, they get a stop 
on a big fourth down, and they go down to try to make it a two-score game. Now, it's, it, this doesn't mean ETSU was going to win. It was still going to be, um, you know, a, a, let's see, what was that, about a minute minute or so to go or ten seconds to go when they kicked the, uh, the game-tying field goal. So, I mean, VMI would have had an opportunity to throw the ball. They still would have been able to clock it, still would have been able to chunk one to the end zone. The percentages I, I get are going to be lower. But they still would have had an opportunity there to, to take a shot or two shots at the end zone before the end of the game instead of kicking a game-time field goal. It seemed like every time ETSU mounted some momentum, there was just something there to quell it, right? Whether it be the lightning delay after the touchdown, the Quay Holmes fumble, which is rare, and he was furious at himself on the sidelines. No one is more upset about that than Quay Holmes, and I'm quite sure that he'll be emphasizing ball security as he always does. And then even like you said on that field goal that Tyler Keltner missed, you called it plenty of leg. Probably would have been good from 60 if it was on target. But, you know, you're into VMI territory after the Jacob Sailor's 28-yard run following VMI's three and out, or four and out, should I say, uh, because they took over at the 50. uh, And then after the kickoff out of bounds by Keltner, they didn't get that fourth and seven. ETSU takes over, and you're like, okay, 28 yards, Sailor's hitting the big play again. You're salting the game away at this point. And then you have the McGue four-yard loss. And then Keltner misses the field goal. Still a field goal game. Maybe instills a bit of belief in VMI. And that's when they got the, I thought, biggest play of the game, the Alex Ramsey on third and two, 29-yard rush. And I know that everyone's going to focus on the passing game. And the rushing game for VMI wasn't necessarily peak. It wasn't the best that it's been for them this year. It's probably not the best that it will be. Only 98 yards. But they had some key rushes, whether it be the Udinsky 16-yarder on that drive out of the lightning delay. Whether it be that Ramsey 29-yard run, they picked up big chunks when they needed to, and definitely when you're looking at the flow of the game, you know that swung things and got VMI down close. And then, of course, uh, if we're talking plays of the game in overtime, I mean, Reese Udinsky proved his medal, right? I mean, he hung in there, took a hit, delivered to Javion Lara, and got the touchdown that ultimately would decide the game. That's a quarterback that's on the ascension again seven TDs and no picks this year despite what you want to say about his yards per attempt yards per completion he is getting the job done not turning it over and making the big plays hung in there made the throw and ultimately when someone needed to make a play Reese Udinsky made it ETSU's offense did not dropping that touchdown in the end zone I still don't want to harp too much on first and third down but I just 36 first down plays were 303 yards ETSU had 16 carries for 102 at 6.4 yards solid there and 14 of 20 for 201 yards. Solid there. Then you turn around on third down. They're one for five passing for five yards. Yikes. Zero first downs. And then uh, they had a three-yard gain on the, the only third and short they had. And you're just looking at three carries on third down for 18 yards, which, again, still not bad, but some of those were third and long draws, right? They weren't going right. to get there. So, it, uh, to me, it, that first down's been a little bit of an issue, but right now it's feast or famine. I mean, either – getting another first down or scoring or doing other things but then when they you know if the first down play doesn't happen and it's first and or it goes second long or something like that or after incompletion or just a negative run or a one yard gain or something it seems like ETS was really struggling from there I think VMI also did one thing that a lot of teams are going to do which anybody looking at the program the strength of ETSU would be the run game right and they're going to put seven eight even at times we've seen a couple of teams nine in the box and say all right guys you've got to throw it you've got to beat us and i think they will continue uh to do that um as it goes along that being said there was some good news in the past game uh the bad news obviously braxton richburg uh, i think on the first punt, punt return of the game uh injured went under uh, the tent got retaped and and just was not able to go so that allowed uh a, a couple young guys in situation they started making plays we saw will huzzy the red shirt freshman we saw the two freshmen uh isaiah wilson i thought those guys did did some good things along with nate atkins and um you know keith coffee long long overdue i think touchdown reception for him spagnoletti makes a play in the back of the end zone one of the better catches and but in the same token uh with the two more experienced guys they were dropped third down passes you know that could have moved the chains and sometimes it's not you know, you, you can think about a long bomb here or there. Maybe it didn't go, but sometimes you need that six-yard catch just to move the chains. As VMI approved. That's right, just that's to exactly move the chain and all get them going. So I think that's, uh, you know, there's some things. It's certainly not uh, just like last year. Uh, you know, it's too early to hit a panic button or anything like that. You also have to remember, you know, where about this time Austin Herrick was um, 
this next game is about where he took over and he had all that experience to lean on. No matter what quarterback plays, you know, right now it's Mitchell and we could see Lewis. I don't, I don't know Thrasher. Chance Thrasher if tweeted he, out this morning that he's ready to contribute to the team. All right, feels so, great, so, so if Chance is ready to, to get out there and compete again and, um, you know, still none of those guys have played a lot. Right. You know, and so it's interesting. I did like the Wild Buck. Your thoughts on the Wild Buck, though? I don't know if I love the name. <laughs> I, I love the. Idea I don't. I don't actually know if that's. You know, okay. it used to be. It used to be called the. Uh, who invented that? Was that uh, uh, the Bronco? Not the Broncos, but the Dolphins. They had a. They called wildcat. it a Wildcat, yep. right? But but then people Wasn't started. Was Ricky Williams running it? Was that who was? It yeah, was, yeah, the Dolphins, and, and, and then they went or? Wild Bronco. That's what I was thinking about. Because then uh, when Josh McDaniels left the Pats, it was the Wild Bronco. But everybody's changed it to the wild whatever. But, yes, with the Dolphins was the originator, and they right. called it the wild. Cat. I love the idea and thought process behind it. They really like Malik McGee. It just seems like that they're still trying to find ways to work him in and came in a bit later than everyone else. So maybe they just don't know what they have there as much and haven't been able to practice as much and implement as much with him. But having Jacob Sailors and Quay Holmes in the same backfield at any time, I am 100% in favor of. You talked about third downs, one for 12 for ETSU. That first touchdown that VMI had, they converted two third downs and then a fourth down. They were two for four on fourth down and eight for 21 on third down. And then that pass from Udinsky to Lara in overtime was on third down. So you can look at the game a number of different ways, but third down certainly one of the things that did decide it. Alex Ramsey, 27 touches, 113 yards, 16 of those carries, 11 of those receptions. And coming into the contest, that was one of my keys to the game was you got to find a way to make sure that he doesn't dominate and get all the touches that he has gotten over the first number of games of the season and he was even more involved in the passing game you know he was averaging 49 yards per game in terms of in the air and while he didn't really uh, put up the big yardage numbers 11 catches and a number of those big ones for that team huge what do you think of Trey Mitchell and his performance I know Randy Sanders had some things to say after in terms of him not getting a lot of help the protection not being as good some drops as we talked about 17 to 38 252 touchdowns and an interception it certainly did feel like he played better than that and with working in Malik McGue and maybe Mitchell not being quite in the field as much as consistently maybe it's a bit more difficult to uh, get in a rhythm and stay you know locked in in that way uh, 40 I believe 5 percent completion is not great especially considering you know, coming in, he was second in the nation in FCS in completion percentage behind only Zara Cooper of Jacksonville State. 17 for 38 doesn't really seem indicative of how he played. No, I mean, it was interesting because you, you did hear, you heard that from Coach Sanders, and then he just kind of said towards the end, he was like, you know, and I think, uh, you know, he missed a few reads tonight. You know, his right. eyes didn't take him where I did. So it was a little bit, a little bit of everything. When, when he did make throws, you know, guys didn't always hang on to it. And there were a couple times he should have made some better throws and he would throw behind somebody or, you know, uh, just miss a guy. And so well, threw into coverage twice, That then one of them obviously being being picked off. Um, but he's, it's so hard because he's really, you know, he wasn't out there. I mean, it's so hard to be too, I think, critical of, of really any quarterback out there right now, um, you know, taking the fan side out of it because you just want – quarterbacks go out there and make plays and throw and all that but I think what you're getting out of him uh, again with the limited time to really be the offense to do everything you want I mean I, I think Trey is progressing fine they certainly had no issues putting the ball in his hands and letting him make throws early and again you look at 14 on 20 on first down that was something that they knew VMI was going to because the first two games they were so run heavy on first down that they knew VMI was going to try to stop that and they countered that and again you you look at it on first down throwing. He was fourteen of twenty for two hundred and one yards and two touchdowns through the fifty seven yarder to Coffee, a twenty yarder to Spagnoletti on that first first down and ten from the uh, uh, right in the red zone. So you saw that. So I think it's I think he's progressing there. I think it's just going to be tough because of the, what people have have seen the last several years, and especially last year where where Herrick was just at such a high level. You know, and, and to help carry it there, I think it's a. I think everyone has to be a little patient with Trey, but Richard I didn't. Th- I did. I did not think Trey had a had a bad game, and and were a couple blown, as you mentioned, protections where they had some free runners and he took some shots. Yeah. you know he's already not hundred percent healthy anyways. And one time, 
he actually had to be helped off the field and they they had to go with that wild buck uh wild cat formation if you will and they just grabbed isaiah wilson and just basically yelled in his ear this is what you do on this play and he he's not even in the package never even worked in it wow that you're supposed to be in the position where trey's supposed to be one other thing for me and then just some storylines to lay out for the week i was shocked that VMI, when kicking off from ETSU 35, did not do it onside. Everyone, I, everyone I've talked to has asked me, why didn't they onside kick? I don't understand. And I, I think that the squib was a good idea if you're not going to onside kick, but you have to squib it less well, like than the, the five, end zone. Yeah. yeah. And so I didn't. <laughs> I have seen some really weird things in football, including a team punt on third down, but that one's right up there. Uh, did not understand that. So I think the big storylines for the week are quarterback, you know, now Thrasher, stating publicly, and I don't know why he did that. I don't know what the move was there. I'm quite sure that uh, Coach Sanders and company, if they've seen that on Twitter, may not be thrilled. I know I wouldn't be if I was the coach um, and trying to make a decision on who I'm going to play. It, it almost seems like it's, it's pandering a little bit to the public to put some pressure. You know, where's Chance Thrasher? Where's Chance Thrasher? Um, so is he going to be in there? Trey Mitchell, uh, someone else, Tyler Rydell was the number two on the depth chart this week, so he has clearly moved up. Cam Lewis uh, saw some action against Shorter, as we know, so there's a lot going on there. Injuries, ETSU is just really beat up right now. There's no question about that. We're going to have to see what Jason Maduofakwa. It seems like Tyree will be okay, but you're going to be playing a, with a club on your hand? I mean, that's tough as someone in the secondary, especially a ball hawk like him. It's going to be difficult to impact the game turnover-wise. Um, and, of course, you know, Nasir Player, I believe that's who Coach Sanders was talking about when he said the shoulder pain post-game. There's someone that we had out there that the shoulder pain probably shouldn't have let him continue, but he fought through it, and that was Nasir who went down with that shoulder injury. Just a lot going on there, Braxton Richburg. And then also Malik McGew, Jacob Saylor's, Quay Holmes in the backfield. What's going to be the case there? Are we going to see that a lot more? I think those are the big three for me. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, yesterday the team got together. I, I, like most Sundays, I don't venture over here. They usually just sort of unpack the the game. They watch the highlights. They do some things. They do some walkthroughs. They check injuries, all that. But usually Sunday's not a day I come over here and try to try to watch. So I'd be curious to say today's a day off Monday. So Tuesday, uh, go out there and just kind of see. Uh, there was a little bit of the walking wounded, you know, you know how is the the defense which is already thin you know folks started practice last week will he be ready to go then you've already mentioned player are those guys ready to go you know trey mitchell i think still a little bit of a concern too i don't i don't doesn't look like he's 100 percent healthy out right. there so how does the qb position go and are they going to do what you said are they going to have malik mcgue um, back there more doing some things and then sailors and Holmes continue to be a one-two punch seems to be working for him I'll be curious to see what about the young uh, youth move at wide receivers you know Huzzy and Wilson I think probably prove they deserve to to get a few more looks not again Richburg uh, you know if he's healthy shouldn't be allowed to, to come back out there and compete I think he's been competing just fine but I think those guys made plays they made catches sometimes they made tough catches and it'd be interesting to see um what they do and what they uh, continue to move forward. Plus the kickoff situation, I think. Who's going? Are they going to, you know, have a chat with Kunak again about hey, buddy, we any do anything you want to do except kick it out of bounds twice. Right. Uh, that's all we need there. So, all right, that's what we'll be keeping up with the week. We'll clearly we're not tired of talking about no. a half hour on well, the game. Well, had a lot to do. Had a lot to uh, say. Well, I mean, it's just par for the course after right. an eight-hour broadcast. All right, we'll step aside for a timeout. This is Sanders and Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Over the last seventy years. Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks, but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Bright Ridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com. Sandos and the sidekick back with you, Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher, and uh, segment two here, a look around the SoCon FCS other notes. Yeah, we haven't really talked a ton about the SoCon in depth to this point in the year, kind of during the top 25 and such, but it was a big weekend for the Southern Conference. Before we do that, we've got about five things that I want to throw at you. Usually we'll do Randy Sanders sound in this segment, second segment of the Monday show and Sandos and the sidekick, but he didn't really have a ton that we haven't talked about to say in his postgame 
uh, chat with you and Matt Wilgem on the Buccaneer Sports Network. So uh, kind of just glossing over that and going to more of a high-level umbrella view of things going on around the conference and the nation. Uh, and we'll talk more about North Dakota State in the FBS Top 25 on Wednesday. But their 24th straight win, they housed Delaware, who is a ranked team. Really, it's even when it's a ranked matchup against NDSU, it still seems like they're just far and away better than anyone else that they come up against. 24th straight win, third longest streak in FCS history. And they continue, you know, doesn't matter who the head guy is, right? They just keep plugging along. Uh, quarterback looks spectacular, by the way, in his first three starts. So, uh, be hard-pressed to see uh, anybody's going to knock them off the throne again this year. Clearly the favorite in the FCS, as they are every year. Seven of the last eight titles. Citadel, their first win over an ACC opponent. They beat Georgia Tech in a topsy-turvy up-and-down game that people made the point. When they're up against a Power 5 school, you can go ahead and schedule them if you want, but you have to know going in that they've got a rich history now, especially recently with their style of play of being able to stick with you, if not pull it out at the end. That's what they did against Georgia tech in overtime, strong looking. I think it was like 37 yard field goal to win it in OT. Uh, they also beat South Carolina in 2015, South Carolina and Arkansas in the nineties, Georgia tech hadn't lost to an FCS team since Furman funny enough in 1983 the 23rd time the FCS has beaten an FCS team this decade or an FBS team this decade. And your guy, Brian McLaughlin, pointed out, he said, you better watch out for Citadel. I'm going to vote for him in the poll. He was the one person to vote for them last week in the poll, putting them number 25, and they go pull that upset. I know you watched a lot of the game. I did watch a lot of the game. And, I, you know, if you looked at their two losses against ranked teams in FCS, you know, final minute losses, and, yes, those are losses, and I get that, but – you know, Citadel is one of those teams that last year couldn't figure out a way, sort of like VMI, how to win the tight ball games. And they didn't seem like earlier, but because they've been in so many, I don't think they panicked. That was the very odd play of Georgia Tech calling a timeout right as the ball was snapped. Georgia Tech ends up scoring. They celebrate. Everyone thinks they win the game. And then they got to be taken off the field because Coach, uh-oh, called a timeout, kick a field goal. Then Georgia Tech misses a field goal in overtime. And Citadel doesn't even run a play. They just send the special teams unit out there and says, all right, we get this in here, we're going home. That's belief. They kick the field goal, it's in there. They actually bust in a bunch of uh, a bunch of the corpsmen that, uh, down, and so a bunch of students in the camouflage uniforms were going berserk up in the stands. I mean, it was, it was good and something that Citadel's used to. They beat South Carolina back in 2015. They've beaten Arkansas before, so they, they've, they've had these type wins before uh, and just think – three minute stands between them having two two wins against some ranked teams on the FCS and a Georgia Tech win. I mean they were ten ten against Alabama last year. And had a chance to kick a field goal in the third quarter to take the lead. So they in their overtime, a couple of rushes come out, kick the field goal twenty seven twenty four. Furman is a different story and I think that we're still kind of scratching our heads about a number of things from this weekend. <laughs> not the least of which is an onside kick that gave Furman the ball against Virginia Tech down seven points with 147 to go, wiped away because apparently you can review if someone blocks a player before the ball goes 10 yards. And I know you're reading some things before we came on the air today that from Virginia Tech-type outlets, outlets around the area, is supposed to be unbiased and everything, so yeah, they're doing a good job of that. But places that cover Virginia Tech on a consistent basis. It's not like it's coming from Furman's side saying that's the worst call I've ever seen, but that's been all over Twitter and outlets up in Virginia that cover Roanoke specifically that cover the Hokies have said yikes, that was bad. It looked like the Virginia Tech player initiated the contact on that block and it should have been Furman's ball. Instead, uh, it was not, and the game was essentially over at that point. Well, I, I knew there's a, there's a couple things you could review that could lead to a penalty they do targeting and all that now, but like illegal four pass may not be called. You can review that. Turns into penalty. So I knew there was some things. Twelve men on the field, sir, is is another one. I just didn't realize that. I knew they had changed the rules that you just couldn't pop a ball up and send your guys down there and just blast people while, while they're waiting <laughs> to get the ball, which is the old rule. Right. You, you can just do that. So you know you, you have to let somebody get a chance to field, or you can hit them once the ball crosses the ten. So. I kind of knew that rule. I didn't know that you could make that a penalty if it wasn't called a penalty. 
But most of the things that I have seen, I've yet to see the play, in all honesty, is the fact that what is confusing is that to everyone else it appears that the Virginia Tech player is the one that actually initiated the contact prior to the ball crossing the 10 yards. And so I don't I don't know what that is, but it would seem a little unfair if you're running the 10 yards to either block or try to get the ball and somebody went ahead and hit you that you couldn't sort of brace and hit them back and then you draw the 10-yard penalty. See, I mean, it just seems a bit a bit hokey now. And a lot of these games hokey, like that's funny. Yeah. A lot of these games that wasn't intentional. Don't give me that nah, smile. <laughs> a lot of these games though you see where like Arizona State and Michigan State, Pac-12 officials do that game. And so when Michigan State went there last year, it was, it was the Big Ten officials that do it. There's no way the ACC is allowing the Southern Conference crew to go in there and do the game. So it was the ACC crew looking out for the ACC crew. Let's just let's just say that. I can be fine, too, so that's what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, some other results. There were some not-so-good things for the Southern Conference, including one of my bold predictions that we'll talk about in a bit. Tennessee 45 Chattanooga, nothing. Uh, North Greenville was up on Western Carolina a lot of the game. They're without Tyree Adams. I don't have any scuttlebutt from Cullowee to know exactly what the suspension was for for Tyree so Adams. game number two, though. He this was game out. number two. So I, it, <laughs> I wonder what's going on. I wonder when he's going to be back. Clearly, they struggle without him. They hold on against the Division Two side 20-17 to for the victory. I don't know if you want to address that. Otherwise, we can talk about Sanford beating Wofford by a touchdown well, or certainly Austin P winning by two scores over Mercer. Uh, there, there, There is a tie, though. Um, uh, the North Greenville head coach. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. Uh, uh, Jeff Farrington. Jeff Farrington was the defense coordinator for ETSU and Mike Cavan uh, for a while. And so Farrington, uh, when he left and Billy Taylor took over the defense coordinator job. So Farrington been at ETSU, been several places before. So having he's clearly been around the uh, the game, knows w- what he's doing there. But not having Tyree Adams, you're looking at what is a, a very anemic West Carolina offense versus NC State, which you get at least, but also against North Greenville. And that shows you how really key that man is to what it is. And if he's suspended, definitely – and you could say this, well, he was suspended for the one-up, one-down game, right? They played up FBS. They played down Division Two, so maybe maybe, maybe that's what the violation of team rules gets you, and then you're back with them. But if he's not back next couple of weeks, it could, it could really, really get a long season for Western Carolina. Credit to Will Jones. I mean, he played pretty well, 27 to 37, 270 yards and a touchdown. But Tyree Adams is just so dynamic, and he's certainly someone that is capable of the big play where – you had Jones run for uh, 43 yards, 80 of those gained, 37 lost because there were some sacks and such with a TD. But Adams is just on another level, the preseason offensive player of the year. Without him, certainly Western Carolina was in some major trouble against North Greenville, just escaped. Austin P. I don't know if I knew what to expect coming in to this year. 0-11 three years ago, 8-4 and two years ago. Then five and six last year, but they look strong against a Mercer team that suddenly was looking like they may be a front runner in the Southern Conference. Yeah, they certainly can score, and we'll talk about this a little later in the week. But Mark uh, Hedspeth is the head coach. He was uh, most recently uh, with uh, Mississippi State. He's done a couple tours of duty there, but he was the Louisiana uh, Raging Cajuns head coach. Uh, for about six seasons, led them to a couple bowl game wins. And the only reason I remember that is because we had a former employee, uh, Big Tuna, as we call him. Jeff Schneider was on the staff and was down there at Louisiana and really likes Coach uh, Hedspeth. But uh, he had uh, lost favor there, uh, was out of a job for a year uh, as far as a head coach. He was the associate head coach, tight ends coach back at Mississippi State and then took over for the governors a couple, couple seasons ago. So he he's going to run a little bit of an up-tempo – spread offense as well which is again pretty common i mean everybody has a little bit of wrinkle but it's not going to be the vmi and and sanford um up tempo type deal it'd be more like appalachian states type offense i just they're just not going to have those type of athletes appalachian state has but that's the style of offense that they would want to play in the second half, you talk about scoring points, but in the second half alone, Cordell Jackson, two interceptions yeah, returned for touchdowns. Uh, it, you know, you get your first one, you're thinking, I've already had me a good day. And that was like 29 <laughs> yards. The second one was like – 69-yarder. Yeah, the next one was yeah almost 70 yards when 
uh, Mercer was rolling down the field. And that's the difference in the game. There were two INTs from Jackson return for a touchdown, 14-point difference. Pretty incredible. Logan Marchie, by the way, my final note, 470 well, yards, you are, you're, you should be his Adrian PR Hawks. guy. You should be his PR guy. Hey, I, I've been ripping him for the 12 for 29 performance against Maine, but Maine's pretty good and Sacred Heart out of the Northeast Conference, despite Mark Hutzel thinking that they were NAIA or whatever he said on the broadcast during the delay. That for, I think that was the first lightning delay was when you had Mark Hutzel on. But 407, six scores, 46 or 56 to 40 win over Lafayette. Uh, just want to try and even out some of the slanderous things that have been said about him in the Buccaneer Sports Network over the last week or so. He did have a pretty good He's day. He's an ESPN3 guy, though. That's, I mean, I, I know he was on there, but... Now, you had him on. I mean, I'm not going to... I did, I did. <laughs> you know, when you're killing several Two and a half hours yeah. of delays. Yeah. Right, so. Speaking of two and a half hours of delays, that's exactly what we're going to talk about next. All right, we're up uh, right after this short timeout. Santa's sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Life is all about perfect pairings. Sweet and salty, naughty and nice, hot and cold... Well, add Instant and Jackpot to the list because that's what you'll get when you add Quick Cash to your next Tennessee Cash play. Quick Cash is a simple way to turn one game into two. With Quick Cash, you'll have a chance to win up to $500 instantly right there at the register. Plus, you'll still have a chance to win the Tennessee Cash drawing later. Get the best of both worlds and get twice the fun. It's Quick Cash with Tennessee Cash, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Pros. Buckle up for Kobe Kobe Bryant just sucked the gravity out of the target center. What a pass. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! In your life have you seen anything like that? In the deep left center for Mitchell. And we'll see you tomorrow night. High fly ball. Edmonton, 42 home runs during the regular season. And we are going to Game 7 in the National League Championship Series. Oh, the is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. He's going to be out of The Bears have won. The Bears have won. Versus Jays. I need a shower. You definitely needed a shower after that seven-hour 56 minute and 30 second broadcast on Saturday that ended for us right around 1.55 is when we got off the air. Started at 6 o'clock and I'm guessing that this is up there for some of the more memorable in terms of length broadcasts that you've ever done at the Buccaneer Sports Network and we'll talk about the connection here to the pros side of things in just a bit. Is it the longest in your memory? Have you ever gone more than seven hours, 56 minutes, and 30 seconds on air with the Buccaneer Sports Network? Continuously. I was trying to think if there was a, you know, we used to do doubleheader baseball. I'm trying to think if there would have been a delay that, because again, I wouldn't be able to throw anywhere. Off the top of my head, no. It's still not the strangest game I ever did. The strangest game was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving ETSU down at Tennessee Tech. Everybody's going through their warm-ups. We've started the pregame show. We're getting about 10 minutes out to tip before they send word to me that we have no officials. <laughs> and you're, everybody's just kind of looking. So then we get past the time to start, and we're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And then we end up ending the broadcast, uh, in which was my shortest official uh, broadcast. We end the broadcast after 37 minutes and say we're actually going to turn around and play at 2 p.m. Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and then oh, wow. we'll have some officials there. That's my shortest broadcast that was an official, but I, because I've never come on air and said, okay, there's no game, we'll be back, uh, you know, whatever. We've we've always just, you know, had the stations make an announcement or whatever. How anticlimactic is that? That's no fun. Yeah, but uh, 37 minutes to, to get warm and all that, but the, the longest, I don't, in football or basketball, that's clearly the longest. I would have to really go back and see if we've done – a baseball game, um, but again, I've gone. I want to say one time we were at Stetson. There was a huge delay, and I actually called the station where I was at and got all the stations to go back to programming, mm. which was a long, long time ago. Uh, but no, this was the longest. How do you think it went? Because I'll say this: I think that you are at your best. So was Matt Wilge and Robert Harper Donnell. And I thought that it was 
phenomenal to just on the fly. And granted, there was some help from others that we'll talk about in a moment. Just on the fly, you've got a couple hours to fill. Yeah, there was some golf talk. There was some other kind of goofier stuff uh, that maybe didn't make for uh, the most quality of Buccaneer Sports Network radio. But certainly you have to have some laughs in a situation like that. So it was a kind of a variety type thing that you were doing. Uh, but I thought that with the stories that were being told, the fact that you're, you know, blue and gold through and through, you have the history here, you touched on some things that were not necessarily all sports. You had Brian Nolan on, Todd Wells, um, and then Matt Wilgen decided to take like a half hour off the broadcast <laughs> and go take a picture yeah, with the he, quarterbacks. He, uh, it, it, it was funny because the joke he said too was even better because I saw him in the hallway uh-huh. and I was like, hey, you know, we're about to get going here yeah. in a second. And uh, he's like, oh, what's it? I had to get a picture with these three great quarterbacks. Right. And one of the guys says, well, aren't you getting in the picture? He said, I said, great quarterbacks. <laughs> because Austin Herrick and Todd Wells and, and uh, um, Mark Hutzel, two of them are Hall of Famers. You'd have to imagine at some point in time just for the program coming back and all yes. that. But you look at it, and all those guys are, are riddled throughout the record book. And I just looked at Matt and I said, yeah, but it didn't beat the number one team two-time defending national champions ever which answer is no none of them did so at least had that going for him but anyways he, that, that was a picture i like, thought a picture usually took like 30 seconds not 30 minutes but that's I, just I, well and here's the other thing i looked left and mark hutzel was back doing tv <laughs> i look up so he was there i look up and austin herrick is clearly talking to coach sanders on the headset right I don't know where he was. It I don't was know. basically did, the rest of the second quarter. Essentially, I don't, did him and Todd Wells go get a hot dog? I, I don't. I don't know. I'm not quite sure. I'm uh, ask. So what? he disappeared. But you had Dr. Nolan come down. I thought those conversations were fantastic. Those were probably the favorite parts of the delay for me. Was Dr. Nolan yourself? Um, and I believe Will Jim came down and and talked with Dr. Nolan as well. Todd mm-hmm. Wells shared some good stories. I thought he was very good. He was. He's like I'm a little bit of a you know, shy or quieter guy. I was like I think he's doing great on radio. So how did you think it went? What were your favorite moments from the delays? I think um, the 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 whole time it started, my thought process was people are going to be listening because some people hadn't, especially the first leg, people hadn't come in. Right. So we, you got to keep them somewhat informed, but also what is going to keep them from turning away? So let's right. let's try to keep it all relevant. And here's where sometimes I think it's huge to have somebody like Robert Harper and even Hellman are both play-by-play guys by nature because both of them immediately were like, hey, well, I'm going to go work on this. You know, Hellman's like, hey, I'll, you want me to run there and try to get Nolan? Yes. Hey, Robert's like, I think you should talk to David and Mark. They prepared for the game. They can give us stuff we've not talked about. Right. Okay, boom, great idea. And so while I'm working on the back end, you know, which people don't know how much we were actually talking and communicating either in when we had a break or just via text and whatever we could do to, to, to sort of get this thing going. You know, I'm looking at traffic cop and the, the whole ordeal that way. Plus, you know, again, people don't know, but I'm, I'm getting messages from uh, the whole external operations. I've got Matt McGahee down there calling me. i got Kevin Brown uh, in charge of communications getting me and, and trying to give as much info as I can so you can keep the fans going. And in the same token, trying to keep it interesting during that. I thought, and I, and I think I told you that just between us, though, but I told you, you know, I don't know if I've ever been more tired, but also I don't know that we've ever executed a broadcast with so many things that could have gone awry. Right. You know, and so I think, you know, you and Jordan back here, compared to what everybody else was doing, everyone was in a mode, you know, except for Wilson who's taking photos. Uh, <laughs> everyone else was in a mode of, okay, we, we've we've got to make this work. We've got to figure out what can we do. Right. What are some topics? Who can we find? And then it was kind of funny that I don't know if Matt had text Scott or if Scott just sort of on his own walked because it was just like we're sitting there talking, all of a sudden Todd Wells appeared. Um, the other funny thing I thought was, you know, we're – start of the fourth quarter maybe five minutes in the fourth quarter and the door opens and usually i know who's either going to walk in my booth during the game most people don't walk in there and i turn around and my dad had walked in mm. and he was not there for the game because he was he went to a reunion uh at the newspaper he used to work in Hinchville, north carolina and said he just had his you know his uh stations always tuned to our flagship 640s he's coming out of mountain he said when he Got to Irwin, he said he could have swore he made out the words VMI, and, and he's like, what? And he's like, oh, well, maybe they're doing the wrap-up, maybe had some delay. And then as he got closer, he's like, 
well, they're still in the third quarter. Right. So as he got closer and closer, he thought, well, I've got my pass. I've got this. I'm just going to whip it on it. So there's a guy that left, went to another state, did a reunion, comes back, and then ends up still being a part of the last little bit because, you know, he lives in Bristol, so he was going to have to drive by there anyways. He just stops and goes. So it was it was interesting to see uh, who all was able to stick around, who was able to, to stay and go. And, and hopefully and we did get a lot of love, uh, and I appreciate that for – us uh respectfully trying to do that instead of just turn on some music or something and say right. hey we'll come back on there that right. we were able to to fill and we've got a lot of feedback on that so i think that was one of our you know result aside that was one of our best broadcasts we've thrown out there in quite some time it kind of reminded me and this is where the pros part comes in of the dolphins titans game from i believe two years ago longest game in nfl history seven hours and eight minutes and i found a fantastic article on a behind the scenes with mike keith from the Titans Radio Network and his whole crew, they interviewed like seven or eight people that were on the crew that day and talked about how they went continuous because they also did that same thing. They have, I think it was 53 affiliates or something ridiculous in four different states. And so you talked about calling all of them and being like, yeah, go back to music. Like, that wasn't going to happen. And Keith, from what I saw in this article, has a weather plan that if you go into a delay, here's the format of what we do. And so when that happened, he pulled out a folder, opened the binder, went to that section, and it's laid out basically that you do long scoreboards with the scoreboard guy, which was something that I was I was on a way to a good like twenty or twenty five minute scoreboard when you text me I'm Dr. Nolan and so then I just cut it, you know, five minutes short or cut it at five minutes and kicked it back to you. But they also play highlights from the game, break down what's happened, do some scene set, sideline updates, reset the game. And then they also had, which is something we had last year, some canned interviews that they use for delays. We use Donnie Abraham, of mm-hmm. course from last year from Santos and the sidekick. We just played him during the football broadcast. It was like a 25-minute talk. That helped us during a weather delay last year. I can't remember where it was, but it wasn't nearly as lengthy as this one. But So that was their whole um, format and how they went through things. And people raved and ranted in that article about how Keith is like the most prepared person in broadcasting, one of the most meticulous and detailed people they've seen, so on and so forth. But I thought it was interesting reading that article and looking at what we did and even how you're talking now about you're playing traffic cop he called it he's playing point guard mike he said i play point guard and i just dish it off to people i've got my color guy who's you know i don't even know who it is quite honestly but i was reading it i think it's a former coach um and if it's not he's a third guy that they use and it's like okay he's got all this knowledge from behind the scenes stuff so i can go to him for this and then for my sideline person i can go to them for this and then for scoreboard you obviously do and so it was very detailed they ran interviews from earl campbell javon curse you know some legends from around the nfl they talked about the Dolphins Hall of Fame ring. I believe it was with Earl Campbell or someone else. Um, and so they had like a completely detailed and in-depth plan of what would happen just in case. We did not have that. So the fact that we managed to get through seven hours, 56 minutes, and 30 seconds now, that game for them from kickoff to finish was seven hours, eight minutes. But that doesn't include their pregame and postgame. So when we talk about seven hours, 56 minutes, 30 seconds, that's us from pregame all the way until we're done. So I don't know how long their pregame is. I imagine it's an hour, I, hour and well, a half. I, well, I remember that, and the uh, the amazing thing about that was they teed up at 1, and their game finished after the 4 o'clock games finished. Right. I, I Started remember, at one oh two. Yeah, I remember watching that. And I think uh, how it works with the Titans, they do an hour for the entire network. But they actually do uh, a 90-minute one on their, their flagship in Nashville uh, because they're one of the few stations that Cumulus, which is uh, the parent company of our flagship station, owns the Titans. Where most teams now own their own, right. Cumulus still owns the Titans network. Mike Keith is the only Titans employee. Every, everybody else is employed through Cumulus. But they will do a 90-minute pregame show of their own leading into the hour. So basically for 1 o'clock it would be noon Eastern is when he, he – he, his part of the pregame stuff really kicks up at noon. He may do a quick spot, spot in, but to host and do all that, he started at noon. They had delays of one fifty-seven, an hour and 57 minutes, then two hours and two minutes. So you can imagine – now the other part of it is you usually have longer commercial breaks – Maybe not so much during network gameplay. I'm not sure quite how they handle commercials. If they did what we did, we were not taking commercials. We were staying on format. They may have had to do the same thing just for some behind-the-scenes stuff that's not very important. Anyway, they finished at 
eight ten. So that's what ten fifteen minutes before the night game kicks off, and as you said, kicked off at one o two. Some other things in terms of longests in broadcasting history. It got my mind working that way. In 1988, the longest continual single-game solo broadcast in history occurred actually in the Appalachian League. The Burlington Indians, they were the Indians then, now they're the Royals. The Bluefield Orioles, who are now the Blue Jays, of course, played an 8-hour and 15-minute 27-inning game, which ended on a blue pit by Jeff Champ of Bluefield at 327 in the morning. Final score, 3-2. Richard Muster, who you may be familiar with, who's now Georgia Tech women's basketball, he was the person that was calling the game that day now that's a little bit different because you do have action going on the entire time i don't know how you feel about eight hours and 15 minutes by yourself you're seven hours and 56 minutes and 30 seconds with a few others helping you out but eight hours 15 minutes by yourself is quite the amount i mean the only way is we went to 97 overtimes in basketball i guess that'd be well even then i still have studio help right so and i've did appalachian league games and have done some double headers um in that realm and what did eat tissue baseball a lot sometimes i would actually take the replay with me um, and just have somebody in the studio just go flip a switch, cut us on, and I'd text them later and they'd cut it off. So I have done some of those, but the eight, and it, it's at least a little better um, that action was going right. on. But still, that's, that's talking to yourself for eight hours is tough enough. Ben Scully, 67 years with the Dodgers, the longest team broadcaster, of course. Uh, he retired, I believe it was last year. It might, be, it might even be two years ago now that it all kind of runs together. Bob Wolf passed away in 2017, 78 years as a broadcaster. They have him in the Guinness World Record book for 75 years as a sports broadcaster. That is the number one in the history of broadcasting in the sports realm. He called Jackie Robinson's last major league hit, Don Larson's perfect game in the 1956 World Series. The Colts' first overtime championship was the voice of the Knicks for their 1970 and 1973 titles. The first voice of the Minnesota Twins, so close to my heart, after being with the Washington Senators starting in 1947. And finally, the longest radio show host continuously now. These are all continuous records. Pierre Wolf was broadcasting since 1958, the longest-running radio host in the country, heard by half a million listeners, Denver radio host that went 60 straight years on various Denver stations and with the Business Talk Radio Network with his show America's Dining and Travel Guide. He passed away last year. So some titans in terms of length of broadcasting career and also some very, very long games with Mike Keith, the Tennessee Titans, as well as Richard Muster, the Bluefield Orioles, and the, uh, what, Burlington Indians? Is that what I said? Yeah, it's all running. Yeah, anyway, very short on sleep. All right, short on sleep. We were You're short. short on sleep. I'm on sleep. <laughs> we're short on good predictions. <laughs> uh, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was very short on good predictions. We'll go over those, the results from bold predictions after this time. After Santa's sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. ETSU fans, there is no more entertaining way to spend your Wednesday nights than with the human soundbite reel, Randy Sanders. It's big boy football. The Buccaneer head coach joins Jay Sandos live at Wild Wing Cafe every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. And if you can't make it to downtown Johnson City to have chicken wings and tater tots with coach, you can listen right here on AM640. All fall long, ETSU head football coach Randy Sanders, Wednesday nights. What time is it anyway? 6 p.m. on the Sports Monster. Everyone in the stadium, and of course the NFL world is aware that quarterback Andrew Luck decided to retire. Antonio Brown ditches practice again after another issue with his helmet. There is a code that has been broken here with Antonio Brown. He's just not a good human. But unless you've been living under a rock, you guys all know that the AAF is folded. Wide receiver Josh Gordon has been reinstated and is now eligible to return to New England. The great Bill Belichick keeps giving Gordon chances. Tennessee head coach Rick Barnes told reporters flat out, if UCLA had paid his buyout, he probably would be at UCLA now instead of at Tennessee. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. A simple wrong would have done just fine. How many wrongs did I get? A lot. Lots of wrongs. You know, just one more thing on pros versus Jays. And you versus Mike Keith. It makes me feel pretty good that when I read that article, a lot of the things that they were doing, we were doing the same type of things with the scene set, the sideline, the canned interviews that we did last year, the long scoreboards. Uh, we didn't do any highlights, but resetting the game, all those things, and we're just kind of throwing it together. I'm not saying we're Mike Keith. We're clearly not. Well, they it, have a way bigger job, but certainly uh, on, makes me feel good, premise-wise. Should, should put all cards on the table. When I first got the job, one of the first people that uh, – 
contacted me after I told him I got the job was Mike Keith, and I spent an hour with him trying to figure out how to create a what the time was a one hour pregame show, ah. and uh, kind of worked through ideas that he thought would be good, what I could get going. So, again, small communities, you, you bounce ideas off. Um, we do not have a weather plan. What I've learned very quickly <laughs> is we need a weather plan. And we will try to work on that. Uh, I haven't checked the weather this week, and I'm actually afraid to. Maybe you can sit down with Mike Keith again and go over about an hour, yeah. hour and a half of what, you, we, what we could do. You, you, know, I, you want me to get him on Wednesday, see if he, has, if he can just give us a I don't think he's going to give it to us on here, but I think you could have a private conversation with him. Since, okay, you know, we, like I just thought maybe we need another type. filibuster. We can just keep <laughs> well, going. I mean, we, we can use some canned interviews. I think that's probably a yeah. good idea. Yeah. We should probably get some of those uh, for later dates. Okay, bold predictions. Uh, not good for either of us, although I did hit on one, and let me just get it out of the way right now. Arizona State! He is the smartest man protest. in the universe. I am the smartest man! They're a genius. They're a genius. Pac-12 They're has come out and openly said, yeah, our officials hose the home team, but uh, Pac-12 wants I am first. the smartest man alive! Don't care. Final score, Arizona State victorious over Michigan State and probably, what, the ugliest game in the history of football? It was like 7-3 like three yeah. minutes ago. It wasn't pretty. But they got me the bold prediction, and I just had a feeling. You know, Mark, Mark D'Antonio, or whatever his name is from Michigan State, denied becoming the all-time winningest coach in Michigan State history with that win by Herm Edwards and company, who are now 3-0. and So you better believe you're going to be seeing more bold predictions from me on Arizona State in the very near future. If you just did anything on offense, Mark D'Antonio, it wouldn't come down to that last play. That's what Clay Hendricks said about the Virginia Tech game, too, for Furman. We didn't do anything on offense. If we would have done something on offense, the game would have looked completely different. Same thing. Michigan State, Mark D'Antonio, look yourself in the mirror like Clay Hendricks did and own up to it. As for you, Georgia Southern falls short by the narrowest of time margins. What was it? 13 seconds were left, and Minnesota gets the go-ahead touchdown. Another last-second win. I tried to warn you last week that Minnesota has a way of pulling these games out at the end, kind of playing down to their competition, or maybe they're just not that good in general, and coming back and still getting the victory. So you lose at the last second. I win at the last second. Yeah, it took me 17-point underdog. Didn't work out. You took a 14-point and won. Yeah, so good on. for you. Give me some credit. Four, points or less for, or four penalties or less for ETSU for me. Yeah, that was clearly not the case. You said... I think it was last week's bold predictions on that Friday. They might have four penalties on the same drive. And they ended up having three personal fouls on the same drive. Now, granted, Randy Sanders and Tyree Robinson, those personal fouls came after the touchdown was scored. But still, nine penalties, 105 yards. I was not close on that. Yeah, have you checked to see if the ball was kicked out of bounds even before that? I mean, we might have had four there. <laughs> I'm just saying. All right, go ahead. Jeremy Lewis interception. He, and he, <laughs> he had one that he had a play on. Uh, he, and uh, it wasn't like one that hit him right in the breadbasket or something. But, I mean, he had one he, he made a play on uh, to deflect, and I thought maybe the ball, when it first when he first deflected, our angle was going to stay up in the air long enough for him to catch it and did not went down just for an incompletion. But uh, uh, him and Laura were, were fun to watch all night. That was, uh, was Matt say, good on good. I mean, those guys were really going at it, and Laura actually gets the last laugh at the end of the day. Stays on two career interceptions and both of them against VMI. That's where that bull prediction came from. And like you said, a solid day from him. And ETSU, I think, really will be pretty happy with their defensive performance in a couple of aspects. But then I think they'll also be trying to tighten some things up this week. Uh, Chattanooga, I, I don't know. I think I was more hoping for them to keep it close. I said that they would keep it within two scores of the University of Tennessee. It was 21 nothing after like five minutes. The, it, it escalated quickly here. So Tennessee went down the field and scored. And then Chattanooga had a punt blocked that was returned for a touchdown. And then I think their next pass was intercepted and taken to the five-yard line. And it was 21 nothing as, as you said. And, again, those games get out of hand because of that. And ETSU clearly knows that. A blocked punt and two INT returns, and all of a sudden, you know, the game game's pretty nasty looking. Maybe it's time I stop being vindictive towards Tennessee and Bowl predictions because they certainly proved me wrong this week. And Chattanooga – I don't know if I'm loving my long-term bowl prediction of them going to the NCAA playoffs or being Southern Conference champions or whatever I said. Western Kentucky for you over Louisville? Not so. The Hilltoppers are who we thought they were or are who I thought they were, at least. You were predicting them after the loss to Central Arkansas earlier this year to bounce back and beat the Cardinals. They're now 1-2 and two after a 17-point loss to Louisville. Stephen Duncan for Western Kentucky did have 245 and three scores, but 210 yards on the ground for the rushing game of the Cardinals, and 2-2 Atwell had three touchdowns and 141 yards in the air. So you go 0 for 3, and I go 1 for 3. We are now tied at 1 and 4. 1 and 4, so 1 right and 
four wrong so far this year for each of us. <sighs> that sounds about right. I am the smartest man alive. Arizona State and Herm Edwards, they're so much fun. How can you not love Herm? You have to love Herm. Who's, who's his quality control coach, you said? Marvin Lewis. Control. Marvin Lewis. I can say control about... Uh, uh, well, and he, I don't even know if yeah. he's a quality... He's, he's there to coach the coaches. I don't even know what that means. I think that's... Well, I suppose that isn't quality control because Austin Herrick would not be coaching the coaches. He's more of like a make sure nothing well, goes wrong and they guys said don't he's have to do in, more than some they. sort of quality control, but I just don't think they put offense or defense on. I mean, it's just a quality control. I don't know. I said my quality control. Mm. Great song. We'll have him on Friday. we got uh, Patrick Good for two segments on Wednesday. So we'll do Randy Sanders sound from today's press conference, first segment. Trying to reach out to, to Brian Reeves. Trying to reach to and we'll probably have him Friday, I would guess. Yeah, we'll Friday. try to get Brian Reeves on there. Play with play Austin P. All right, more Sanderson sidekick Wednesday. Buccaneer Sports Network.